The Lord be with you. It's wonderful to see a full house here on the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, if you could, maybe, I, I mean, I think everybody's in the room, but if we have to move to the middle and love your neighbor more intimately than you'd like to, we appreciate your help with that. It's great to be here and to be celebrating with you. I want to make sure I let you know what's going on for Christmas Eve. Uh, we're going to be getting together to celebrate the Nativity of the Lord at 9 p.m. for one hour. It is not the same service as our Sunday morning Eucharistic service. It is a celebration of the Lord's incarnation. It is not going to be part of Advent per se because I'm guessing you all don't want to come to church on Christmas morning. Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> the church traditionally gathers to worship and celebrate the Lord's birth on Christmas morning, and we're not going to be doing that, but we are getting together Christmas Eve as close to midnight as I could get you. Hint, hint. Um, but we will be getting together for one hour, and that will be featuring carols done in three very distinct styles. So it'll be a, a fun evening. There'll be readings and uh, thoughts shared that will focus our hearts and our minds on the coming of Jesus. And so we hope to see you there Christmas Eve from 9 to 10 p.m. Um, if you're visiting with us, and we know we have so many excuse me, guests who are with us this morning, I want to extend a warm welcome and say how glad we are to have you with us. Uh, during the Christmas season, uh, in my background, many churches and pulpits have seen it as a time uh, to protest the evils of consumerism. And that has uh, been understandable. It makes perfect sense. Uh, many of us have found ourselves drowning in this sort of competition to buy and to purchase and to keep up and to not disappoint, um, that extended itself into another campaign uh, that was a protest not just against consumerism, but against secularism. And back in New York, where I come from, the Knights of Columbus had a very strong campaign for many years, uh, either on billboards or in the neighbor the neighborhood yard, uh, keep Christ in Christmas. I don't know if you've seen those signs out here. Um, the evangelicals were a little bit cheesier. We said Jesus was the reason for the season. Uh, that was sort of our mantra uh, to fight the secularism of our day. But I think this morning there is another subtler force at work. And it is one that I believe potentially strips Christmas of its transformative power in our own hearts, and that is sentimentality. Sentimentality, this overly sentimental season, and I'm using the term in a very specific way this morning, so bear with me. When I say sentimentality, I'm talking about the pursuit of and the emphasis on positive feeling as the goal and the validation of our celebrations. So in other words, the point of Christmas is to feel good, and we will do everything we can, consumerism, nostalgia, whatever it may be, to acquire those feelings as if the feelings are the highest good or the point of the season. And I'm not here to be a Grinch. 
And I'm not here saying you should be grumpy all through Christmas. That's the last thing I want to say because the feelings themselves are not problematic. My prayer for you is that you will have plenty of good feelings throughout the holiday season. But I think we are prone to pursue those feelings in ways that are not fit to the Christian faith. And this is why I'm grateful for Advent, because I feel like Advent grabs sentimentality by the throat and says, go no further. Think about it. Advent does not give us a jolly, rotund grandpa in a red suit. As we heard from the gospel this morning, the gospel gives us a wild-eyed man from the woods wearing camel skin and a leather belt. And there are no milk and cookies set out for John the Baptist. There are locusts, and not just honey. What kind of honey? Wild honey. This is organic in the worst sense of organic. This is, I'm sticking my hand into that bee's nest, and I'm, this guy in bugs, right? He's got a thing. Bugs. John the Baptist is a central character for Advent. It's why he shows up in our reading this morning. And John the Baptist, I want in your mind, however you picture him, the spirit of Elijah, if you will, but I want you to juxtapose John the Baptist and Santa Claus. And I want you in that mind's eye picture that I hope you have right now, I want you to see the difference between American cultural Christmas and Christian Advent. John the Baptist comes as this central character who is a bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. He is what I would call a vestige of the exile. He is a hanger-on of this time when the nation of Israel, by God's own plan and intention, was dragged off into foreign Gentile pagan lands as a punishment for their own idolatry and sinfulness. Daniel, more than any other Old Testament writer, this prophet spoke of a kingdom. He uses this language more than the other prophets put together. A kingdom. And of course, Daniel speaks under the rule of Cyrus and the Persians. He speaks of a kingdom. And that language of kingdom has been dormant for centuries until not Santa but a wild-eyed, camel-coat-wearing dude from the woods comes out. And what does he say? Repent because the kingdom is at hand. Suddenly, Israel perks up. The text from the Gospels tell us that from all over the Judean countryside, all of Jerusalem goes out to him in the woods. They don't book him and bring him in and buy him first-class tickets to show up for their conference. They go to him in no man's land by the Jordan River. They go out to this wilderness prophet, and it is a fulfillment of our Old Testament text this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. We begin reading at the first verse there. The prophet says, Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, here we are, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then what we were just singing about. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead the mother sheep. Let's pray. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our own sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, and everybody said, amen. The book of Isaiah is a very interesting book. The majority of scholars would tell us that this book was written in three distinct time periods, first, second, and third Isaiah. First Isaiah would be comprised of chapters 1 through 39. Curiously enough, our reading this morning begins at the first verse of chapter 40, at the very outset of 2nd Isaiah. This is a, a section of Isaiah that would have been written on the latter years of the exilic period. So the Israelites living in Babylon are hearing these words while they're still in Babylon. Wondering if God has forsaken them, they hear the cry of the prophet, comfort, oh comfort my people. The first 39 chapters are filled with judgment, oracles, and pronouncements against not only Israel, but the nations of the earth. And what sets out in the 40th chapter are 16 chapters of glorious, joyful announcement. And this is where we find ourselves in Advent. There's so much that I would want to bring out in these 11 verses, but I'm just going to focus on four main points. Our text today contains an unbelievable message. Secondly, our text contains an impractical assignment. Our text contains an inspiring promise. And our text contains a prophetic responsibility. 
This unbelievable message is this message of double comfort. Not just comfort my people. It's comfort, oh, comfort my people. Now, that may be a detail lost on us, but we have to notice something in the second verse. It says that these people have been punished and received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. There's been a double punishment, and we look at the book of Exodus chapter 22 to discover that a double punishment is the punishment for theft. This is an indictment against a nation. They have stolen from God himself, and they have been punished twice for it. But look at this. They are now about to be comforted twice over. That's encouraging to all of us that God's justice is not primarily expressed in punishments meted out, but in the comfort that comes to restore us. It does say that the punishment comes from the Lord's hand, and that is a troubling detail we might want to gloss over. But it does tell us something this morning, and that is God is paying attention, and he takes our sin seriously. More specifically, as the people of God, he takes our idolatry seriously. It's on Mount Sinai as an act of covenant that God says, you shall have no gods before me. From God's perspective, idolatry is akin to adultery and unfaithfulness. And he is heartbroken and grieved as a wounded lover more than he is offended as a pious judge. In what ways would idolatry creep into our hearts? In what ways would we claim out of one side of our mouth to be Christians, but in our practice worship other gods? The gods of the West are not usually carved. The gods of the West are not usually the sort you can put on a shelf. The gods of the West are primarily ideas. Our gods come in the form of self-preservation. Our gods come in the form of independence and autonomy. Our gods come in the form of security that will give us what we call freedom. And friends, I'd suggest those might be our idols. I've traveled around the world. I've been to India, which is famous for having more than 300 million gods. I've seen people on the side of the road, bowing before a rock at the base of a tree. And in our Western churches, I've heard missionaries say, oh, India, can you believe they have 300 million gods? And I live in a country of more than 300 million people, and I can't wonder if we don't have more than 300 million gods ourselves. Yahweh takes worship seriously. And worship is not primarily what we do in this room this morning. It's the life that we live. Is it yielded and submitted in trust to God's command and his leading, or are we at the steering wheel? The beautiful thing in this unbelievably good message is that exile, punishment, discipline is not the final word. Comfort is not a vague future. It is an embodied reality that God will bring to us. I am so grateful this morning that we have unbelievably good news to share. 
And that is all of our bad choices, all of our selfishness, all of our wickedness does not end with punishment. It ends with comfort. Exile is never the last word. Discipline is never the last word. The writer of Hebrews makes it so clear to us that the Lord loves those whom he chastens. Love is the final word. It is the first word, and it is all words in between. And this is what we must remember in Advent. Wherever you find yourself, if you are far from God, if you've been living on autopilot, not paying attention to the leading of the Spirit, I have unbelievably good news for you. And that is God's final word over your life will be shockingly good. Secondly, this text contains an impractical assignment. When we read Isaiah, this third verse of the 40th chapter, we have to pay attention to the punctuation. Because it's not saying that it's the voice of one who is crying out in the wilderness. The text says there is one who is crying out. And what is he saying? He is saying, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. He is saying, make straight in the desert a highway. This is incredibly impractical. Wildernesses, they are places that lack the infrastructure we need. They are places of desolation. Deserts, they are places of oppressive heat and oppressive cold. No water, no trees, no resources. And this seems to be the message of the prophet. In the place of your desolation, in the place of your isolation, in the place where you have no resources, get to work. This is very impractical, God. Can't we wait till we get back to town so we can go to Home Depot and start then? That's not the message of the prophet. No, this impractical message says that in your difficult place, work is to be done. Eugene Peterson said this. He said, we begin this work in the desert of our present existence. Can I say this? We are in a season of waiting. We are in a season of waiting. And what it means to be a Christian is to wait well. We're the people of the blessed hope. We're the people who, who pray out, even so, come Lord Jesus. But can I also say that there's a waiting that is not of God? Can I also say there's a waiting that is just stalling? Can I say that there's a waiting that is our laziness? Can I say that there's a waiting that allows us to be preoccupied with other things? Can I suggest that maybe there's a waiting that enables our own sense of inadequacy? What has God assigned for you to do? And are you waiting on the conditions to be right until you do it? I think the prophet says, no, if you're in a desert this morning, you can still get busy. If you're in a bad place, a hard place, an isolated place, that's no excuse to not be doing something. So much of our time is spent 
waiting for the, the stars to proverbially align so that we can begin our work for God. And I love the work that we're doing. We're not really building anything. We're just setting up infrastructure. You notice that when we're preparing the way of the Lord, our preparation is not the main event. Oh, there's such a release in what I just said. Let me phrase it another way so that we can all just take a big exhale right now. God's got work for you to do. But this is not work that is going to be the star of the show. This is work that's getting ready for the star of the show. The work that we're going to do, it's not the ultimate building. It's the infrastructure for what God is going to do. This is what we do in the deserts of our personal existence. And the culmination is not to sit back and look at the road we made. We don't sit back and look at our highways. We don't sit back and say, you know, there used to be a mountain there, but I cleared it. We don't say, oh, it used to be uh, shaky ground there, but we built it up. That's not where this section is headed. This section is headed, it says here in the fifth verse, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Please remember that in all of our effort, in all of our working, as impractical and as inconvenient as I can guarantee you it will be, it is always headed toward glory. It is headed to the weight and the goodness and the essence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit showing up. And what is beautiful about this text is it's not just about me seeing the glory. It's about everybody seeing it together. I couldn't help but wonder as I was preparing this sermon if this isn't why almost instinctively we see the holidays as a time to get together with other people. Could we not be praying over these next days and weeks heading up to our Christmas celebrations? Could we not be praying that our getting together wouldn't be an end in and of itself, but that our getting together would be that we're positioned like an audience to see the glory of God? Wouldn't it be great if God's glory touched your house or your in-law, especially your in-law's house at Christmas time? In Advent, we remember that our work begins before our circumstances change. Thirdly, in this text, we have an inspiring promise. We have an inspiring promise, and that is God's word is relentlessly true. It is relentlessly true. God's word and his promise is indefatigable. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. Notice that these exiled people who are hearing these words might be suspicious They might be suspicious when the prophet says things like the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. Pay close attention to the end of the fifth verse. We say these things because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I wonder if a person who had been in exile, exile lasted 70 years, and maybe there was somebody who as a child remembered being dragged out of Jerusalem. And there they sat on the shores of the Euphrates, growing up, hearing stories about Jerusalem, hearing stories about this great God, Jehovah, but never seeing the power, starting to doubt whether or not this God is real, 
Here you are in Babylon looking at hanging gardens and looking at libraries and looking at beautiful gleaming cities. The temple in Babylon would have been four to six times the size of Solomon's temple. They left Jerusalem thinking that here is this great temple where the God of heaven resides, and then they go to Babylon and see one that dwarfs their own temple. It would make sense then in Psalm 89, almost certainly a psalm written during the exile, that the Jewish people would cry out in verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created, all mortals. Who can live and never see death? Who can escape the power of Sheol? This would capture the sentiment of a typical person in exile, I would think. And to that person, they hear these words of comfort. To that person, it might be too good to be true, too hard to believe. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Who cares if the mouth of the Lord has spoken it? He hasn't done anything for us. And so the voice cries out, all of you are like grass. Sounds like the psalm. We're mere mortals. But look at this. That grass withers. The flower fades. Your reality as you know it, it's passing. But the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. This is at the heart of faith. This is the promise that says, I may come and go before I see it fulfilled. The book of Hebrews again tells us this at the end of the 11th chapter, that there are people who were sawn in two. There were people who were pulled apart by horses. There were people who died for the name of Jesus, and they never saw the promise fulfilled. But it's not because the word failed. It's because we're temporal. If it looks like God's word wasn't true, it's because I don't live long enough. It's not because God's word isn't true. So there's hope here. We can remain steadfast in our hope because we worship a God whose word outlasts us. His promises endure beyond us, beyond the scope of our understanding. Friends, our limits reveal God by way of contrast. To the extent that I'm temporal, God is eternal. To the extent that I'm limited, God is unsearchable. To the extent that I have an end, God has no end. So I don't look at my limitations and my shortcomings to be frustrated with God. I look at them to say, well, God's got to be the opposite of this. This is what we find in Advent. I don't last forever. But in Advent, we remember our confidence, our hope rests in God's reliability. Lastly, this text has prophetic responsibility. In the New Living Translation, it says, Shout loudly that God is coming. Turn up the volume. Now is not the time for composure. Now is not the time to be proper and prim and all together. Now is the time to let it rip. Now is the time to raise your voice with all of your strength and say, God is about to show up. Prophets don't do their work with composure. Prophets do their work with volume. 
And what are we crying out? That God is coming. And he's coming with two R's. He's coming with his reward, but he's coming with recompense. He's coming with this sense of powerful justice that is going to set wrongs to right. If I'm hearing this, I'm excited because I realize I've already received my double punishment. So clearly when he comes with recompense, he's going to be setting something else to rights. I've already been set to rights. And if you've been saved by grace through faith, somebody said amen. And it got me thinking, what is this recompense that is coming? For the prophet to herald loudly, your king is coming with power and recompense. John Wesley said that he's coming to destroy his adversaries. Who are the adversaries of the coming king? Who are the adversaries of Jesus? Friends, it's not Republicans. And neither is it Democrats. The, the adversaries of God are not the people who don't look like us or don't think like us. Those are not the adversaries of God. It seems to me that the adversaries of God are sin and death. It seems like on the other side of the resurrection, we ask the question, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Caesar was not the adversary of Jesus. Sin and death. And where do sin and death enter the world if they don't enter the world in the Garden of Eden? If they don't enter the world through this famous exchange between Adam and Eve and a serpent? And to talk of Advent requires us to think of this story in Genesis chapter 3 where we close. And of course, the serpent is on the stand first, as you may recall. This wily creature. And God says to him, I will put enmity between you and this woman that you have deceived. But I love this. It's not just enmity between you and the woman, but between your offspring and her offspring. And your head is about to be stricken by the heel of her offspring. Her seed is going to bruise your head, and your head will strike his heel. Hmm. This is why the fathers of the church refer to Mary as the new Eve. And this is what he says to the man. Because you listen to the voice of your wife, which is usually smart for most of us, uh, he says, and you've eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Look at this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And I want to draw your attention to the 18th verse. Listen to what God says. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. In other words, Adam because of sin, plant life is going to pain you. Your work is going to hurt you. And your efforts will not be productive. Because rather than raising up corn as it will, you will raise up a thorn. 
This is what would grow up out of the ground. And I started to do a little bit of crazy math in my mind, and I started to think, wait a minute, the word of the Lord stands forever, but plants that come out of the ground fade and they wither. I started to think, could it be that the coming king, when he comes back, when he walks into our situations, that the thorns and the thistles that have been growing up in our lives because of sin start to shrivel up and die? Could it be that the king, with like a frosty breath coming out of his mouth, just breathes with his spirit upon the sin in our life, and it shrivels up and it dies? The things that pained us, the things that made us unproductive, the things that would frustrate us are the very things that are the results of our own sin. We can't fix sin. We need a king. We need the offspring of the woman who will walk in, and look at this, by his breath blow upon these plants. And this brings me to the second stanza of Rowan Williams' poem that we heard last week. He will come like frost. One morning when the shrinking earth opens on mist to find itself arrested in the net of alien sword set beauty. Let's pray this morning. Father, this morning, we do not think of ourselves more highly than we should. We understand that we are all beset by sin. On some level, we've all worshipped other gods. We may find ourselves this holiday season in our own personal desert, and I pray now for all of us we would hear these words of double comfort that there is an unbelievably good message for us this morning. I pray for the person who's looking around and seeing a desert and they're waiting for the desert to change. God, I pray that your spirit would spur them into action this morning and realize that it's in the desert that we build our highways. It's in the wilderness that we make things ready. May we have the courage and the energy and the boldness to start working even though our circumstances haven't changed. I pray for the person who's filled with despair, doubting, wondering whether or not you could be as good as they've heard. God, may we find hope today, not in our emotions or our circumstances, but in the fact that you are reliable. Your word stands forever. And God, I pray this morning that your spirit would blow through our lives. Even now in this room, oh God. That the beauty of of, of frost, the beauty of of this image, this silvery image, is the beauty of our king. Oh God, may you be the death of death. May you overcome our sin. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.